Welcome to the second episode of What the Mel. What the Mel is powered by Proximity International and is a space for in-depth, honest discussions on all things research, monitoring, evaluation, and learning for humanitarian aid and development. My name is Ezra Carmel, and I'm joined as usual by my Melster nerd accomplice, Richard Harrison, and we're both lucky to be joined today by Volker Huls. Volker is the head of the Effectiveness, Knowledge, and Learning Unit at Danish Refugee Council. Volker, it's great to have you with us. Great to be here, and I'm really looking forward to having a chat. No, we're, we're really excited to have you on, and for today's discussion topic, which, which actually zooms in on something we discussed in the last episode, um, Rich and I were talking about you know, a number of different spaces of M&E and the different kinds of M&E work, and this conversation led us into you know, a discussion of different settings of M&E and the different profiles and jobs of people working across the fairly expansive M&E world. And now in this episode, we're going to zoom into one specific M&E space and one specific job. We're going to discuss what it's like to occupy a senior M&E role within a large INGO. And we'll discuss the reality of being in a position like this, um, how one might find their way into this kind of job, and some of the key challenges involved in this position. <laughs> and I know Rich is really, really keen to get in and, and discuss those challenges. I feel like this is a super interesting space. I'm so happy that this is our second show and i'm really grateful that Volker, you could join us today i mean i've never had a role like yours i'm really looking forward to hearing uh, what it's like to be in your shoes my perception has always been that this kind of role that you, that you have is kind of in the middle between the, the sort of huge complex needs and work at the donor side and then you also have to think about endure all the you know the natural challenges and stresses of managing monitoring teams on the ground side you know I, in a way I, I feel like it's the backbone of this space it's the backbone of the overall meal space um, but it's also the one that I feel that I kind of sympathize for the most uh, in the fact that you sort of might perceive I'd love to know if this is right or wrong that you have to deal with both those worlds. I, I imagine it almost like a seesaw and you're the fulcrum of, of, of the system. But um, yeah, it'd be great to know how it really feels. So um, yeah, exactly. I mean, Volker, would you like to tell us, you know, a bit about your position? You know, what what's your day to day like? Uh, what are the key focuses of your efforts in this position? It is actually um, um, really great to be able to talk about that um, because, like Richard, I have never done this before. So I um, I joined DSC um, a little bit more than um, two years ago um, in the summer of 2019. So, um, and I have not ever worked in an NGO or a large NGO before. I have not ever worked at um, HQ level before, other than as a consultant, but not in a, in a staff position. So. And I, I do very much come from a from a UNICEF background. I, that's my big institutional experience. So I was a staff member at UNICEF before, and then I worked as a consultant. So um, it was right. uh, uh, for me equally interesting to to step into that role. And, and of course, it's an attractive thing to do because you feel you can influence um, um, everything meal in the organization mm -hmm. and really um, strengthen um, that function. And that is very much where we also. Ah, and that's also where how I came in because when I came in, uh, the team was growing. We call it we call it meal, and we still call it meal as much as um, we now have a 
a bit of a wider remit and whole ourselves a division and, and um, have that more bit fancier title. But at, at the heart of this, that's monitoring, evaluation, accountability and learning, which is one of those combinations that we find a lot in the NGO world specifically. So the A added to the MEL. And, and interestingly, we have started with MEL. And I'll mention in a little bit that we actually have still some MEL going on that we're evolving at the moment to, to become meal. Um, but um, of course, seeing that accountability bit in there is also very exciting because that covers the whole um, accountability to, to affected uh, people, AP, that whole agenda and the whole um, also commitment to the core humanitarian standards. So it's, yeah, it's, a, it's quite a wider remit. So day-to-day is actually extremely diverse. And I mean, like I think I mentioned to you earlier before we started the recording as well, we're just building our global results framework, um, which is is a new experience for everyone. So um, at the moment, there's a lot of conversations with the program people who lead on the different sectors that we work in, um, on what indicators are going to work, uh, that we can aggregate Mm -hmm. to the global level, um, how are we going to reflect different dimensions Mm -hmm. of our response, um, how can we get better, you know, how we can actually collect meaningful uh, results, data that goes beyond uh, counting the number of people that we reach. So so that's that's very much the last few months that's been occupying me a lot thematically. Uh, but then at the same time, you have needs from country level or the regional level where they, they need some, you know, specific support to maybe build a, a, a good meal plan for a larger program or uh, look at look at terms of reference for an evaluation. We also, of course, have to like lead on on, on evaluations in the organization. Um, so it's 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 pretty diverse. But yeah, very much at the moment trying to bridge that gap between what data we're collecting at the at the field level where people deliver. Uh, on the ground, uh, and how can we bring that all the way up? Where, of course, and that's a bit of the topic here, uh, there are also expectations from the outside, including from donors, but also from the public, from um, the need to talk about what we do here in Denmark to the public. Um, we need to provide something, you know, that makes sense to people uh, to understand what we achieve. So, um, and that's a very interesting experience because it is quite. A large distance between that field level reality and um, up here, uh, meeting all these expectations. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and a key aspect of accountability there as well. Mm. And, and as you were speaking, you reminded me that you know we wanted to have meal in the title of the podcast, um, but well, you know what the meal just sounded a bit too much <laughs> like a cooking show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and I'm fascinated, and you know, I'm sure others will be. Um, you mentioned that your background is mostly in in the UN side, and I'd love to hear, you know, a bit more about your your journey into this current position. Oh yeah, yeah, um, happily. So I, I mean, I have in many ways probably a, a very traditional journey in the humanitarian system. So I would I would always see myself as a as a humanitarian. I've I've started on the ground, let's say, in East Africa in um, well over 20 years back, um, and uh, pretty much in WASH, water sanitation, hygiene. Um, That's how I came into this line of work. And um, I would say five, six years water projects, uh, large water projects even, a lot of work in Somalia with water. Uh, And that's when I joined UNICEF. And um, in UNICEF, incidentally, is when I made the switch to what we called at the time uh, Planning, monitoring, and evaluation (PME). 
uh, you know, different people have different terms. And I guess a different mix of the alphabet soup. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> different alphabet soup. So, and I mean, planning is a big thing in UNICEF. So that this whole results planning and, 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 and results frameworks, of course, is a lot more prominent in, in the UN. Um, so which is it comes in handy now because I've, I've gone through a, a very deep experience in, in, the, in you know, the, the UNICEF planning cycle. But uh, after, I think, seven, eight years, I left UNICEF uh, for personal reasons. My, um, uh, my wife got a posting somewhere else. I felt like it was time to maybe try something else. And I started to um, go freelance and, and, and worked as a consultant. And then, long story short, I got increasingly into evaluations. The last few years before I joined DRC, I was um, generally working on, on large UN evaluations, uh, you know, UNICEF, WFP, and um, really enjoying that. But then um, when there was, a, again, a decision to, you know, to, to be made for, for, for private reasons to come here to Denmark, there was a post in DRC, and I thought it would be perfect because um, DRC also wanted a lot more attention to to the evaluation function which needs to be developed and it worked out I, I came in and have been enjoying the ride ever since great well i mean your work in the field and and with the un and with ngos sits exactly at the at the sort of nexus of what we're talking about today and and what rich was mentioning earlier where it almost seems as if ngos and their meal are sandwiched between you know the field on one side and the donors and public on the other mm. so you know, given your previous experience and now your your position in DRC, I'd love to hear you know how you think INGO meal fits within the broader meal mm. system. I mean, first of all, I can't say that there's anything typical about how we do meal, apart from that, of course, we do industry standards. But I mean, DRC is also quite unique it's an it's a it's a, it's a very highly decentralized organization we have at the moment i'm not <laughs> off the mark 37 uh, uh country operations and they are i mean they're very diverse i mean we have we have a, a program in, in 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 italy we have a program in, in serbia but we have a program in south sudan we have a program in yemen so um uh, there is there is there's huge differences between them and a lot of these programs have grown quite organically together so um, DSC has, from the outset, been quite a, quite a, um, driven by uh, its country operations. And, and uh, having HQ capacity, like we're building up now for meal, and, and uh, it's, it's something that's fairly relatively recent um, coming to that kind of, of uh, size and scope. So, uh, and that, of course, makes it particularly um, interesting because, um, as any true humanitarian knows and does, when you're faced with a, a challenge, you find a solution. So we do have, of course, a lot of amazing people on, in the field who have found great solutions for their, you know, information needs for how they how they monitor, how they how they uh, understand their, their bigger results, etc. But bringing that together, of course, is a challenge. So uh, it's something everybody collectively has worked on um, over the last few years. We're, we're trying to get more standardization in, in our sector approaches to, you know, have sector strategies, have have uh, theories of change uh, for this for our sector. So our global sector leadership can also like leverage a certain similarity across all country operations in terms of the quality of programming. Uh, what kind of programming we undertake, et cetera, and, and of course, how we measure it. So um, it's a work in progress, but um, 
this uh, little endeavor that we have uh, with our new strategy, strategy that we now also finally want to have a global results framework brings out the challenges because we need to find uh, a way to have some what is unfortunately still very much expected have to be able to count how many people we reach and the quantification of reach is rightly or wrongly still very much something that is um, expected from a large organization and there is of course um, most um, large NGOs have found some sort of a way to express that and if only to to have have that in, in an annual report how many people have we actually reached um, in the previous year and then go into detail uh, what exactly um, happened but it's also something that um, parliaments, I mean, if I'm, we're talking about the wider system, parliaments of donor countries very right. much understand. So we're having a lot of conversations mm-hmm. with the Danish government. Mm-hmm. Of course, we're, we're here and, and, and they're also a big donor for us. And we worked with them quite closely on the on YATI, uh, the International Agents Parents Initiative, where increasingly there is a bit of a, of a common drive uh, for NGOs and others to 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 be to publish um, our financing but also our results onto an open platform which is the Yati platform and uh, there is also the desire to have people reached figures uh, next to the funding and that is also something that um, the Danish government is very committed to also provide to parliament for example so there is those expectations but at the same time we know as as meal male professionals that this uh, number of people reached is not particularly meaningful as much as we can express that in different dimensions and we can go you know a bit more granular but what we really want to understand is is how are we contributing to change and and that we don't get from just counting the people so so in in that regard i feel um i i, I also need to um like drive a, a process and drive a system that we will have and we will use that is, is dominated by expectations because we feel we have to because everybody else does it and everybody wants it but at the same time also now trying to find ways and we're very in very early stages there how can we augment this um, number game with more meaningful evidence on um, how we're contributing to change so in that regard i feel quite a bit between i mean as you say caught in the middle because i know that I will have to add additional reporting burden onto um, our field staff because asking them to consistently give me numbers um, is, of course, an additional burden. They didn't have to do that before. They could have that contained in their projects or programs on the ground, and now they need to need to uh, consolidate them and, and, and report them upwards in a certain way. That's an additional burden, so I'm not necessarily feeling good about it, but at the same time, knowing we need it, we need to be able to provide these figures increasingly uh, it's an expectation but then also coming back down trying to also argue how can we use this in a more meaningful way and what else can we actually do to really understand where changes and then also how we can get better at uh, contributing to change so it's an interesting process but yes um caught in the middle is probably a good um, term for that volker could i just ask you thinking about the donor perspective I've always wanted to understand whether in your position it feels like you're having to deal with many differing kinds of need or expectation around how evidence presented. Is it the case that in your role, you know, leading in a a meal function or above a meal function, you know, you see different almost psychologies or, or, or 
points of focus mm. uh, in thinking around the presentation of evidence and you and you have to deal with that and it's a, it's a, a daily challenge or, or is it somehow there are ways that donors um, are, are, are quite coherent uh, or somehow it's, it's, it's less of a problem? What's your sense of that, please? Yeah, I mean, myself and my team, we don't necessarily have to deal directly with uh, the, the direct donor demands because, uh, I mean, the majority of that is handled at the country office level. So there's grants um, that are reported directly there. And then, of course, most donors will have certain requirements, what indicators, you know, we should be reporting on. So there's a diversity. There's no question about that. So one donor will have a different set of indicators they want than other donors. There's not necessarily harmony between them. And of course, that increases the diversity of the monitoring that's already taking place. And that come, that, that's when it comes down to like the additional burden on field stuff when I want to harmonize and um, collect the same kind of information from every country, from every project, from every program, while they at the same time still have to meet the donor reporting requirements. So yes, of course, having the, the dream that um, a donor would basically just accept our results reporting where we say, listen, this is the information that we routinely collect across um, all our operations. We feel this reflects our uh, program best. Would you be happy with that? And of course, that's not the reality. So that's that's the one thing. And then at the same time, we have also demands beyond you know the results reporting. We have, for example, donors that want to have uh, increasingly value for money. You know to, that we demonstrate value for money, which means that we have to then also show the results that we achieve as compared to the investment that we make is. Of a reasonable ratio, so it's 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 that adds an additional dimension. We have to then also go into the analysis of financial data, etc. And that some donors do that, other donors don't. And 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 of course, the diversity of the the expectations from donors is of course a challenge. And then one other thing I would like to mention, and, and because that's also my particular beef, is um, uh, project evaluations, because um, there is numerous donors who from a certain size, of course, rightly so, would like to have um, an end-of-project evaluation. And of course, um, we often, I mean, the reality is that when you do a, a project budget, um, there's usually negotiations um, with the donor. The money is never, you know, it's, it's never plentiful. And of course, um, the implementation is prioritized. And then I often see that there isn't really a lot of money left at the end of that project that has been put into an evaluation. And then it feels like we do an end of project evaluations literally to to please the system and to, to, to tick the box. And then quite often those evaluation reports are not particularly useful for what evaluations really should be used for, which is um, organizational learning, which is, is really like um, being able to, to lift the evidence a bit above the project level and get a deeper understanding of um, how do we actually achieve results and, and, and why do we achieve them or why not. Um, and that's often missing. And I, I have this thing <laughs> ever since I joined and I've discussed that uh, actually uh, when I had the opportunity, I also discussed it with, um, with uh, evaluation people in donor agencies. Um, they agree. Uh, I think everybody kind of agrees that um, having all these little project evaluations is not particularly meaningful. It would be a lot better if do, um, donor funding would actually go into more, you know, bigger thematic evaluations, uh, multi-country evaluations, some more com comparative work. 
but of course it's the system is is what the system is and at the moment that's where we are so elevating that to to a more meaningful evidence collection would also be something that i really would like to be able to do uh, but again the diversity of of expectations from different donors is is a, is, a, is a fact of life here yeah yeah i mean i think there's a, there's something of an elephant in the room for me which is that you know when a project packs up um the mail packs up but i mean to some extent yeah. but you know the, the the people who are implementing often would feel and i assume rightly that the true impact you know outcomes and impact should flourish and, and the story is being told one two three years after you know we we pack up uh hopefully but there's mm. you know there's no budget at that point yeah. I, I feel like somehow as a community we need to both yes as you say um harmonize sort of uh, bigger more fundamental evaluations but um also you know i wish we could somehow <laughs> put money in a, in, a, in a savings account yeah <laughs> somehow to to go back to these places and uh, maybe maybe we need to encourage donors to help us put these funds somewhere so we yep. can go back and and, and look later yeah right? yeah no and and that would be awesome if we could do that but i often feel it just requires a, a level of flexibility that just is not there and i mean it's not even the donor agencies i mean if there's amazing people working in donor offices right yeah. they're often extremely knowledgeable very open-minded but then where is the finance act being decided right that's you, you you always go back to the parts of government that have no understanding of of, of the humanitarian um, space and, and the needs and then it comes down to the money and and the accounting for the money and i think if we're talking about um caught in the middle i i think probably staff and donor agencies are also caught in the middle there between the the ministry of finance and and the field realities right so 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 there's a lot of layers of being caught in the middle yeah, um, in this in this little story here. Yeah. yeah. one thing I've always wondered would help or not is, is is the establishment of a of a real global norm for the proportion of um, implementation or a program mm. that should be spent on on meal. Like I'm uh, are you aware of a of a of a current dialogue around that? There was a time when Diffid wrote a paper that said I think three to five percent, and yeah. I was <laughs> I was using that, but then I lost the, the paper. Like, I, I, I'm not sure these days whether there is a, a, a number. Yeah, yeah. I heard five percent, but right now I can't actually say where I last saw that. But <laughs> intern internally, we're using three percent, and I can assure you, it's it's a battle. Right. I mean, I okay. have I can think of a couple of country offices where we have three percent or have exceeded that. But that is literally because we have uh, meal staff that have made an exceptional effort or were able to make an exceptional effort to show that this can be really useful. Yeah. And then um, they get the buy-in from management to actually do things, and that brings up their budget. Uh, you know, it's a self-reinforcing um, um, positive cycle. But in, 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 in a lot of other operations where money is tight, um, we're far from the 3%. And again, it's self reinforcing negative cycle right um, if you don't spend enough money on, on good evidence how do you get more money you get it with good evidence when you can actually show that you're making a difference um, that ideally should be able to get you more more funding and better quality funding just yesterday i was i was i'm, I'm doing studies at the moment as well and i was studying i was writing a paper on um, 
there are supposedly four phases of project management, mm. right, of which the last one is um, closure and handover. And mm. um, I was reading some academic papers on the value of all four phases. And, and the last that last phase is really, well, it's, it's also known as lessons learned. Yeah. And um, academia argues that each of them are fairly equally important. Mm. So, um, and it just makes me feel that, um, I feel like the learning element is still something of a teenager in terms of its uh, establishment. You know, I feel like yeah. hard data has its obvious worth and is used by for decision making. Um, but I feel with learning its value and its ability to improve the future, you know, future projects is is something that is um, still underappreciated. And if uh, maybe if, you know if we can be more uh, uh, compelling in, in how we uh, document and share learning, maybe, maybe we'll help to increase that 3% somehow. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I don't want to be all negative about it. So let me start with a positive thing. Um, I was lucky that I was involved or like a co-author and a single author of two um, uh, synthesis of evaluations, which um, I did uh, as, a, as a consultant a few years back for UNICEF. And that is extremely powerful when you can actually take good quality evidence, set it all out in a big space and look at it together and then realize that you can lift it up uh, to a much more compelling level. And I mean, we did a, a 10-year uh, synthesis of uh, humanitarian evaluations for UNICEF and um, that's the kind of evaluation that goes to the executive board which is of course it's the governing body for, for UNICEF and and that that actually led to um, some changes in, in the global guidance on, on um, emergency response which is awesome so there is some real you know that that is how you can actually get learning into into um, action and, and into um, the organization and improve the quality of work and it's possible. So um, having seen that, of course, I, I would like to do more of that, but they're costly. It's a, it's a, it's an expensive thing to do. Um, you spend more money on top of evaluation reports than you've already spent money on. But um, we need we need these kind of, of, of quality exercises. And then going back down and, and finding the bad things. I mean, the one thing that I also find problematic is even when we are able to, let's say, even capture some real-time evidence that certain things are not working and let's say it, it's 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 we're in a, in a perfect situation where we actually go and and start implementing an emergency response where we even have been able to talk to people um, before we started we got everybody involved but as we go along we realize this is not really working we collect the evidence in good time we pr we, we present it it's all still going while we have the evidence in hand but that means, in this case, we would have to completely turn this project around and do something different. Is that possible with uh, normal funding? It normally isn't. It's really, really difficult. This, this, this is when you head into like, oh my God, you have to do an amendment, you have to do this, you have to do that. You can't possibly change uh, the overall results that you, we had agreed on the on the on the funding. You know. And that's when you have those challenges, right? You see that you should be doing things differently. You even want to, which is often very hard to get to the point that you can do that on mm. time and, and, and you know, really want to turn it around and, and make it better. But then you're stuck with either bureaucratic process or even the inability to do it because the funding is just too mm. rigid. And speaking of, of making 
you know, organizational changes based on evaluations and the difficulties around it. I'm really interested in in what learning looks like in an entity like DRC. You mentioned earlier how, how decentralized DRC is. So I wonder, you know, how or the extent to which a learning culture can be instilled across such a such an expansive organization. How is that that learning culture fostered? Just to start, I I mean, this is, it's part of the global portfolio, like I said, but it's also like something um, we're literally building up and also trying to um, provide a lot more leadership on that. So when I joined, the team was just coming together and also having the capacity to to also focus on on, on, on these additional tasks. I mean, not additional tasks, they're very ingrained in what we do, but at the same time, you also need to um, have more time to actually have a meaningful um, focus. So from the global side, we're probably still in our infancy. I mean, in terms of like steering uh, larger learning processes and, and, and getting that culture in also to get a, a more understanding of the utility of, of learning the, at the executive level, which is also important. You need management buy-in. Um, that's worked really well last year with COVID-19. Um, uh, we we were able to do a, like, you know, on the fly uh, while everything was going, while we were scaling up and then into the dealing with our different response um, as a consequence. Uh, we had quite an interesting, um, you know, uh, learning exercise going. So that was great. And that's a global thing. And of course, that shows that there is value in that. But um, I see a lot of correlation between Literally uh, having the, the headspace, but also having the fiscal space to do it. We have our, our largest um, regional office, our largest region is is, is um, arguably East Africa, and, and it's also our oldest regional office. And, and there we have uh, always had uh, more capacity and more ability to do things. And they, for example, had a, a knowledge and learning person um, now in post uh, for, for a few years, which is, of course, immensely useful because um, she was able to also go to country offices and, and convene staff, you know, and talk about what's happening, what can we learn from, from certain programs or situations. Because the, the thing about learning, you don't learn because someone writes you a report, right? You learn while you, for example, talk about it. That's why, for example, after action reviews are, are, are a really nice thing to do because you you capture people's immediate thoughts of something that happened and in the process, you already move quite far along the learning trajectory, right? Where you, where people realize that they can actually have um, some practical lessons already from what they've just done, and 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 being able to convene, so having the the, the headspace, but also the, the the funds to to be able to act as a convener to to have such processes. We also had um, then the ability to do. Uh, real-time evaluations, which are also really useful for that purpose, I find, um, because they're, they're, they're fast, they move along with emergency response, and you find things and can inject them into the, the actual operation and also immediately use the learning, improving the response. So to me, it's yeah, it's having the headspace, but also, of course, uh, the, the financial uh, means to, to be able to do that. And if it's only staff time to be a convener, and a facilitator of processes. But having said that, the last thing I'm going to say, then back to you, is, 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 is really, I don't, I have the feeling once that happens, people are really, really keen on doing that because it's, it's, it's such a positive experience to learn. When you realize that when you, then somebody starts talking you through and you, you have an opportunity to share, 
people realize that this is actually really good for them and really beneficial. They can learn from what they do themselves. Um, so I, I, I generally find it a very positive experience, but systematically, unfortunately, we're not quite there yet. So it's initiatives, it's ability, but it's not yet that we have a system of learning. Um, that is um, one of the things to do. Yeah, I, I feel I feel like um, the concept of learning is still finding its own definition. I feel I feel that when I see senior managers or donors talking about learning, there's this sort of concern that it's maybe flimsy or, mm. or doesn't deliver concrete benefits. But I think I think we're going to get there. You know, I feel like for me, I've had to come up with my own definition of, of learning recently. And, and I think it was something like improving decision making through assessing successes and, and failures. But I, I feel sometimes that in order for learning to be accepted and, and, and bought into and funded in a way, you know, for managers to approve, mm. you know, days long workshops or somehow their busy team members being given permission to set time to sit one side. You know, I feel like we almost need to present the the concrete benefit of it in yeah. terms of future avoidance, really, of wasting time. That's a space where male practitioners can maybe more, be more effective in, in just evidencing to senior management and, and other program teams that we can literally save their time by avoiding the same banana skins that, that we've come across before. Mm. But um, can I ask you something else? Can I can we talk about the ground level a bit? We've, yep. we've we've spoken, I think, about you know maybe being between two different scenarios. But on on the ground level, I would love to hear what it feels like to he- hear the opinions and, and and stories of those in all of your country offices and. The, the, the monitors, how do you feel the country level teams feel about um, the meal responsibility in front of them? If we could give them a, a magic wand and have one wish, you know, what, what kind of, what could we do to make their lives easier? And any thoughts about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing that I, I see in DSC, which I, I, I really appreciate is that our meal specialists are really quite, they're very respected and, and, and sought after. Um, which is great, uh, gives them a good standing. At the same time, of course, there's never enough of them. There's, you know, there, it's it's a, it's an extra investment to to have meal staff. So that's a, that's a good thing. But at the same time, then there is also a huge demand on them. And and I feel that um, when I go down to the lowest level, like our what we call area offices, away from the from the office in the capital, where you know, literally, where the response happens. Uh, and and uh, a meal specialist there, they run around all the time doing surveys, uh, you know, managing surveys, um, analyzing uh, survey data, you know, s- supporting, uh, you know, terms of reference, um, working on indicators. So, it's it's a it's a very busy job. I mean, like arguably everything else, I guess everybody is terribly busy in this business. But it's it is, I feel, uh, to the extent that it's also quite difficult to 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 help them. Uh, get you know sometimes step step up a bit and look at how does this all come together and how are we contributing to the bigger results at the country level etc 
So trying to foster that is really quite important uh, in terms of making them feel they're part of a community. And that's one of the things that we try to do uh, from the global level that we have. We, we manage the meal community. So every meal professional in the, in the organization is part of that. And to also give them access and, and also the offer that when you have needs to, to, to talk to someone else and, and, and get advice, then of course there is that opportunity. And, and, and also to an extent build the capacity in that regard. But we also would like to be able to push a lot more uh, capacity and skills into that network because we also understand that in, in, in many countries, I mean, when we hire meal professionals, they, of course, would like to have a lot more knowledge and, and capacity. And we also would like to really provide a lot more opportunity to learn whether these are online courses or, or webinars. So we try and do that as much as we can. But of course, there's a limit. It's a limit in terms of capacity. But it is, I think, uh, when you're down there in the area office, you're extremely busy. But at the same time, yes, you have tools and you have uh, instruments and, and knowledge, but you also need a lot more expertise, knowledge, access to information. And getting that sometimes is, is really hard lack of time, but also uh, lack of resources and opportunities, I guess. So it is, it is, it is a, a tough job, but uh, at least um, in my perspective, there is, there is a lot of respect for, for the function, which is good. Yeah, yeah. And, and staying on the ground level, community level, can we touch back on um, acronym alphabet soup mm. and meal versus mel and, and the letter A? Mm. Um, I, I feel like when I've occasionally had a chance to talk to NGOs about accountability, um, I've never, I've never really absorbed enough what it what it means to have that that the A in the meal. Could you, could maybe others listening are, are the same? Would you mind just saying a little bit, please, about accountability yeah. and and why the INGO sort of ME community? has passionately opted to have that A in there and what, what it really means? Um, I mean, I mean, we're civil society, right? That's how we see ourselves. And, and, and of course, we follow a rights-based approach. We, we want to look at people as people with ability and with agency and, and rights, and they're not just subjects of response, right? So, of course, the, we need to be able to also realize that kind of concept. And that, of course, ultimately is the holy grail in accountability is that there's active participation of, of people that are affected by an emergency, by, by, by a disaster, to actually actively participate in, in not only uh, deciding of what is good for them, but also to the extent of their ability also participate in the response and, and us being more of a you know, facilitator, of course, bringing money in, etc., but not having this this position of power where we have the money and we tell them what to do. And I mean, humanitarian assistance has been very supply driven. We, we all know that. So, so, so there's that thinking, of course, the reality is far from ideal because participation, that's why I say it's the Holy Grail is, is the hardest thing to achieve. And there is no, I mean, we constantly um, get updates from, from the research side that uh, participation is really not moving so well, that, that we can actively actively have participation. Many reasons for that. But then the other side is the lower hanging fruit is at least make sure that when people have a concern, have feedback, have an issue, there's a problem, they can tell us and we do something about it. So, And that's uh, community um, feedback mechanisms. And that is like the minimum 
requirement and and we also we we are an agency that has um, subscribed to the Coyumin Pan standard uh, that's a minimum standard that we have to have that any every response that we we manage has to have a community feedback mechanism uh, where people have sufficient ability sufficient channels to freely feedback also in a critical way also file uh, significant complaints when there's something that's not going well for them so that's the a in accountability in practice so our meal staff usually also uh, oversee um, the community feedback mechanism and manage that hmm. well maybe we really should have been what the meal even with the the sort of food podcast connotations <laughs> um but Considering how the acronyms are changing and the ongoing evolution of MEAL, um, do you have any thoughts on where MEAL you know, needs to go in terms of its thinking and in terms of its practice? You know, how does it need to evolve into the future? Uh, I mean, if it, the one big thing, and having just talked about accountability, I mean, it would, of course, be uh, amazing if we could find a, a meaningful way that all that information that we're collecting and all the analysis we're doing that we can actually also share that with the people that are part of our response, um, the, the people that are affected. Um, and I mean, there is very, very little of that happening. I mean, I, I also sit on the on the interagency humanitarian evalu- evaluation steering group, and we have just started in evaluations to actually put money into um, making sure that whatever gets found out in the evaluation also goes back to at least the people that were interviewed for the evaluation. But it's it's very, very um, low level. Um, Again, it needs uh, mental space. It needs money. uh, It needs staff time. And it's, it's just seems like a luxury, but it would be so important to, to really have, have all these data sets, being brought back in a in a in a in an accessible way. Of course, it has to be somehow well accessible. It can't just be a report or a or a computer screen dashboard to the communities uh, where we work. So it's um, that to me is the is the big challenge, and that yeah we're not really tackling that. I, I often wonder whether we can look forward to a next chapter for data within communities around what we're doing. That is, that follows somehow the trajectory of stories like TripAdvisor or Amazon ratings, where you disrupt an industry mm. by putting the, you know, the the, the beneficiary, the, the 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 client, the consumer, whatever you call it, for which industry, front and center. You know, twenty years ago, who would have thought that we would think about what to buy? Um, with rely, relying so much on the, the the simple transparency, the, the rating that comes from just having a an online mechanism, do you yeah. do you think that there's a a chance that we might head in a direction where you know with more and more clients beneficiaries having access to smartphones, we might almost cut out um, the sort of monitor basis for interviewing and and you know i mean this is maybe too much but you know imagine we had qr codes at physical project Mm. sites and you know of course that could eliminate the vulnerable who who don't have smartphones but if enough of them had Mm. them and uh, i'm thinking of say syrian refugees and a lot of them do if they could jump straight into giving feedback 
um, there would be pros and cons. What, what do you think about that as a, as a possibility? Does it, are there downsides too? Uh, I mean, you said the right thing just now because you, you, you did point out that we will effectively exclude probably those that we need to listen to most, right? So those who are not socially um, able to, to use a smartphone or because of, of uh, being, you know, so extremely deprived that they can't afford it. So, um, but then at the same time, I, I'm with you that any feedback is important feedback, right? As much as we have to be careful to understand where the feedback comes from and that we're excluding certain uh, groups of people by making it so, you know, electronically um, um, advanced. Um, I mean, I think it would it's certainly something something to try and I, I i i i sometimes feel that maybe we're just worried about what comes back um because it could be like you say it could be super easy and i mean it would be if you think about it, it would be uh, amazing to see that even online but of course i mean there is the concern of um you know we opened the whole pandora's box of fake reviews uh you know people having Having issues uh, of a different nature and just use that um, the, the, uh, those channels uh, for their own purposes, you you will have to address all these concerns. But I mean, it is of course uh, it would be very much uh, shortcutting um, uh, all these these feedback loops that we quite painstakingly um, manage. And but yeah, I mean, with the right amount of caution and making sure that we're not running into trouble in terms of you know. Uh, data issues and, and, and data sharing, etc. Um, why not? Great. Well, that's a very interesting future-leaning note to leave things on today. So, Fulker, thank you so much for joining Rich and me today. It's, it's really been very interesting to speak with you and to, to learn more about this space. Yeah, no, that was um, uh, very interesting. Thanks very much, Fulker. I'm, I'm really happy to have learned more about what it's like to be in this, this crucial role in, in, the, in the meal environment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you again, Volker. And thank you to everyone that listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of What the Mel. <laughs>